If you are on your laptop or not otherwise engaged, you may want to follow along with the transcript provided below. It has updates and footnotes. Any judge or prosecutor more dignified than a urinal cake should be screaming about the shit show our DOJ has become. Sadly, many of them don't think of themselves as more dignified than a urinal cake. Welcome to the Political Party Pooper Playbook. And if you thought all we did was sit around thinking up ways to poop on empty suit politicians, well, you'd be half right. This is indeed the P4B. Welcome to the Political Party Pooper Playbook. Today we will cover, along with the book, Joe Biden and his Supreme Soviet. Give me the man and I will give you the case against him. Lavrenti Beria. Resurrected by the poof Merrick Garland. Before we get to the book, I am continuing to read analysis from both sides of the Trump indictments. The most recent indictments are nothing short of scurrilous. It is important for people who get their news from TV or political videos to understand what is in these indictments and what Jack Smith announced when he unsealed them are two different things. In his big dramatic announcement, Jack spoke of the 1-6 mini-riot, maybe 50 or 60 people being violent, if that many, and said that this is what he was addressing in his indictments. But the indictments don't address that and mention of the mini-riots include doctored quotes trying to paint Trump as rousing the rabble, which he certainly did not do. But the real problem with the Jack Smith fairy tale is the requirement that the prosecutor must prove to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt that one, he, the prosecutor, is a flawless mind reader, and number two, that no laws existed for an election to be challenged right up to the second of certification. On the first, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Smith is not clairvoyant. He cannot possibly know what was in Trump's mind on 1-6-21. I could be wrong, but I think mind reading ranks up there with Scientology and mail-order x-ray specs. On the second point, of course, those laws existed, and arguments went back and forth inside the White House for weeks about how to seek redress through those laws. It's not unprecedented. In 1960, Hawaii impaneled an alternate slate of electors. In 2000, Al Gore had an alternate slate ready to go, but ended up conceding before the challenge took place. I'm glad he stepped aside. He might have won his challenge. Knowing what we know about the man now, a Gore presidency would have been unthinkable. And that is what Trump was trying to establish, an alternate slate from states he believed ran corrupt elections. And history tells us it is clear that in places like Philadelphia, for example, the counting process was filthy. But no one called Hawaii's alternate slate fake electors or accused Hawaii of fraud. No one called Gore's slate fake electors, and he was not charged with fraud. He should be charged with pump-and-dump fraud, 
with now defunct energy companies, but that's a different issue. In Trump's case, his actions were so illegal, in quotes, legislators clamored to change the laws his challenge was based on, so it would be harder for candidates to seek redress. And people claim this is a good thing? In a 2020 Reuters article, Dueling Electors Hanging Chads, A History of Contested U.S. Elections, Brad Heath outlined the history of disputed elections with particular attention paid to Hayes versus Tilden. The electoral process was so messy, laws were established to allow for challenges to elections. Here's the applicable paragraph. A decade later, Congress enacted the Electoral Count Act that was meant to establish a roadmap for resolving disputed elections in the future. Though exactly how it would work remains unclear because of ambiguities in the language, election scholars say. The law has never been tested or interpreted by the courts. So, where's the fraud? Where's the crime? Losing an argument isn't illegal. Soliciting legal advice isn't illegal. But when you are dealing with a morally vapid political machine like the D.C. Democratic Party, it's show them the man and they'll find the crime. In this case, they'll make up crimes out of whole cloth. Trump took the fight down to the wire. He lost his fight and he left peacefully on 20 January like every president before him. And for the record, on January 6th of that same year, he called for people to make their voices heard, quote, peacefully and patriotically, end quote. Funny how the order of his statements that day are constantly run in reverse, and the peaceful and patriotically phrase keeps accidentally falling out of the videos you're shown. Grow up, America. So many don't like DJT. I get it. I'm pulling for a Ramaswamy versus Kennedy matchup. That would be a humdinger. But you do not want to live in a country that uses the courts as political stepping stools. Any judge or prosecutor more dignified than a urinal cake should be screaming about the shit show our DOJ has become. Sadly, many of them don't think of themselves as more dignified than a urinal cake. One of the most direct ways the P4B is supported is through Poe River Furniture and Yard Games. I won't get too specific about who runs Poe River, but he's really good looking and his initials are Matt Jordan. There are a number of one-of-a-kind pieces that I created including very nice wine stoppers and what I call recycled palette art. There's also a huge selection of gifts that I designed and had made off-site. Occasionally, you will see yard games listed. That will depend on how often this podcast allows me to be in the shop. I'll leave a link or a button below so you can shop Poe River. Now, let us revisit our Tome of Enlightenment. I wish I could affect a British accent. This would all sound so much better. Chapter 12, later in the episode, is once again timely since I recently saw B.J. Bill's wife and a few other knuckleheads 
screaming about the issue on Twitter or X or whatever the hell we're supposed to call it now. Street Politics, It Ain't Your Daddy's GOP Anymore by Matt Jordan. Copyright 2015. Formerly 16-2024, A Path to Consistent Conservative Victory. All rights reserved. Chapter 10, Obamacare and Other Medical Fantasies. $716 billion funneled out of Medicare by President Obama. An obligation we have to our parents and grandparents is being sacrificed, all to pay for a new entitlement we didn't even ask for. The greatest threat to Medicare is Obamacare, and we're going to stop it. That's a quote from Paul Ryan. It's too bloody bad Ryan and the other three morons spent the last four years standing in the way of that quoted objective. This should be a runaway success for Republicans. But keeping in mind my earlier complaint about message and guts, watch the typical loser candidate handle this. He will say it is bad policy and bad for our people. If asked what he would do, he'll say the Republican legislators take very seriously their responsibility to see that American people get the health care they need. No, no, no. This has been the consistent Alan Shepard prayer approach to the issue. This is worse than lame because it uses the kind of empty political rhetoric we've already decided to dispense with forever. More importantly, it repeatedly misses the golden opportunity for real conservatives to pound away at an opponent and the program. Say what you're thinking at this point. Obamacare has nothing, nothing to do with health care. It is a status scam to take over a sixth of the economy and reward politically friendly insurance companies with the keys to the system. They will bilk it in exchange for acting as government administrators. It has failed in every conceivable measure. Repeat that whole paragraph for effect. We are going to completely eliminate Obamacare from the Federal Register. The insurance industry will issue real insurance policies. We will cap medical damages. They were not invented to destroy caregivers. We will permit insurance companies to sell insurance nationally across state borders. This will increase competition. We will let them offer coverage they are willing to offer in exchange for what the consumer is willing to pay. We will encourage businesses to de-link your insurance from your job. There is no logical connection there anyway. Keep it, quote, portable, as people now like to say. Time to teach. We'll assume you're giving a speech in Obamacare or the subject has come up in front of an audience. If you are smart, have your board and easel ready. If you know how to use electronic graphics and still be interesting, go for it. Write insurance companies on one side of the board and you on the other. Using basic scribbles, demonstrate the following. Insurance is a bet. All insurance policies are bets. Your homeowner's insurance company is betting that your house will not sustain a serious calamity and you are betting that it will. If your house burns down, you win and you get the money to rebuild. Life insurance is a bet. 
if you die within a predetermined time, you win. They all work that way and were designed to do so. Medical insurance used to be that. Each month, based on the risk the insurance company was willing to take, you would ante up with your monthly bet payment. If you stayed healthy, the money stayed there. And as designed, if you got catastrophically ill or injured, the company would pay out your winnings, sometimes to you, sometimes to your medical provider. The bet started to change some years back. People would get a cold and not be able to pay their physician. Such things weren't covered by insurance because, number one, they are not by nature catastrophic, and two, because it's not a bet. There is a 100% chance that you will get colds from time to time. The same is true for rashes. The same is true for kids getting stitches. People started going to the press and the government saying they were put behind in their bills because their kids' stitches or the flu or whatever weren't covered. Oh, how sad. There ought to be a law. Remember, Henry Limpet, wishes do come true. Well, the government provided laws, lots of them, to force insurance companies to provide for everything. The more minutiae that got piled into policies, the more expensive policies became. Medical savings accounts are a great idea, but with increasing premiums, along with all the money the government takes from us every month, who's got a few hundred dollars to open one of those? Also, since insurance companies were forced to try to control rates, and at the same time, pay out on so many sure winner bets, they became increasingly strict on what they would and would not pay on. Copays and deductibles went up. Obamacare only exacerbates the problems and the costs. We were told we'd save money because of Obamacare, but that was a lie from the very first. The system is, by design, more costly to the end user and was known to be so even while Barry was pointing out the promised savings. Now, my darling constituents, how would you like to have plummeting insurance and medical costs concurrently? How would you like to have the opportunity to stash some of what you would save in an account to pay for incidental medical bills, keeping costs low? How about fewer increases on your insurance premiums? By going back to the days when medical insurance was for major injuries and illnesses, by allowing more competition, by letting people shop their medical dollar to any physician, and by not encouraging defensive medicine, we will see our medical costs fall into the basement. But what about the poor and the elderly? Who will take care of them? Here's the best part of all. Without even changing eligibility requirements, more on that later, we can save billions by radically streamlining forms and compliance and changing the way we pay out Medicare and Medicaid. Presently, Medicare and Medicaid, two of the four most scammed government entitlements, are run by massive bureaucracies. Money comes in, the government takes its cut for doing nothing else but handling the money and creating mountains of needless paperwork, and then it gets paid out to states for distribution which also costs money. To save on all this, we need first to do better means testing. Punish fraud with gargantuan penalties. 
Scamming critical assistance programs should rank up there with murder and violent crime in terms of penalty. If we need help in nailing the vile pieces of shit that try it, we can call on the many suddenly out-of-work IRS agents to sniff them out. Next, we convert to a voucher system. All those enrolled get a card. This card works nowhere but at point of service in medical offices and pharmacies. It can only purchase prescription drugs and non-elective procedures. The cards carry a fixed value per week, month, or year. The time frame can be anything that works best. If you shop your card against the best price and practice, it lasts longer. Dollar amounts roll over. So as you accrue money in the card, you're more prepared for catastrophe. At that critical moment, if you've been on the system for a while and you've not abused it, the government needs to spend less of this year's dollars to protect you and top off your card. Again, this is not an ATM card. You can't use it for anything but medical care. Payment comes through a closed system and is made to the caregiver. It would be no more complicated than to set up a credit card arrangement at JCPenney. Separate Medicare and Medicaid dollars from the general fund. It never should have become part of that to begin with. If you ever want to know the real motivation behind these programs, along with Social Security, Obamacare, etc., just remember, it was made part of the general fund. The idea was to fatten government coffers first. The government knew it would have to tax its way to paying out on this money later. So de-link this and other welfare programs from all other spending. Finally, compliance requirements would be radically streamlined. Once a patient is enrolled and has a physician, medical records and administration should be a living document added to as needed and simple by design. Multiple billions would be wrung out of the system every year with just this change alone. We will always have fraud. These programs are always going to be with us, but they can cost multiple tens, even hundreds of billions less each year by simply administering them efficiently and more challenging, honestly. An honest Republican, and certainly a conservative, should have no hand in growing these programs by one more penny. To do so would help no one and hurt everyone. If you're a pet owner, you know that taking care of those little poop machines can be expensive. Between vet bills, food and supplies, and costs add up quickly. That's where 1-800-PET-MEDS comes in, the ultimate online destination for pet medications and supplies at affordable prices. PetMeds offers a huge selection of pet medications including flea and tick medications, heartworm preventatives, and prescription medications. All the products are from trusted top quality brands so you can be sure you're getting the best for your pet. But that's not all. 1-800-PetMeds offers a wide selection of pet supplies including food, toys, and grooming products. They even have a selection of prescription diets for pets with specific health conditions. And they offer free shipping for orders over $49. So why wait? Visit their website today. I'll leave a link below the audio line and start saving on your pet's health care needs.
Chapter 11, Energy Policy, Micro. Build the Keystone Friggin' Pipeline. I'm thinking since I just completed another chapter, maybe I should cut to commercial. Nah. Chapter 12, Minimum Wage Equals Minimum Thinking. I was going to pass this one up as a phony issue, much like the chicken little global warming routine. But like GWCC, the consequences of pursuing the progressive agenda on minimum wage will have harmful results, especially for the people progressives are pretending to help. This is how I approached the subject in a blog post now on www.streetpolitics.us. Perhaps in a follow-on book to be out during the general election, I'll pick apart the articles line by line. No great challenge. Better still, I might consider a short ebook devoted to the subject. George Will once posited this question that if by some miracle everyone's net worth and income measured against purchasing power were to triple overnight, would the howling about income disparity suddenly go away? The answer is, of course not. The reason is because pundits and politicians favored by the non-thinking class would point out the lower third on the income ladder are still on the lower third and therefore cannot afford the four-bedroom, three-bathroom lake house the middle third now can. And that isn't fair. One should fold one's arms and stomp a foot when uttering that last sentence. Assume I've done that for you. Fortunately, the free market does not address what is fair in terms of how big your bank account is, how much I get paid, how shiny and fast his car is. That is up to you, your upbringing and your decision making. In the free market, and I would contend in a truly civilized society, citizens have the sense and the strength of character to live their lives without complaining about the possessions and success of another. All this may be aside from a compliment on the qualities of whatever it is that other person has garnered. The compliment would be a simple pleasantry. The rest is none of our business. Further, we meddle with opportunities and the methods of success of others at our own peril. This is axiomatic in the thinking of successful people. People who made their own way in this world without resorting to the insulting of or interfering in the lives of others. Wow, the heads of Occupy Wall Street fans are exploding all over the country right now. More despite the fact that many are of the 1% they pretend to despise and privileged with a college education. Yet they don't understand the first sentence of this paragraph. And those that do know it's true. But they also know they'll never be able to apply their global warming degrees with such dangerous ideas still lurking in the minds of thinking people. How does this apply to minimum wage? Well, let's go back to the politicians I've been insulting since Chapter 1. They know that a large majority of people think it's okay to raise the minimum wage. They also know, but wouldn't dare mention, that few people actually have to work for what is presently the federal minimum wage. They also know a 
few more things. I've got it. We help the poor by taxing the poor. First, the sector of the economy for which this wage was introduced, never having a lasting impact on those intended to help, is the unskilled entry-level or supplementary income sector. Wait staff in mid to low quality restaurants, gas station attendants, unskilled construction labor, we used to call them gophers, janitorial staff, etc. Because of the simplicity and often the flexibility of working in these sectors, these jobs were typically offered to teenagers to give them entree into the working world and teach them a work ethic. For others, it was supplemental income. None of the jobs minimum wage laws were aimed at were ever intended to be a livelihood and were not designed economically to be so. The fact that middle-aged people have crowded out entry-level kids at Walmart is neither our nor Walmart's fault. The same pandering polls also know that the electorate is shamefully uninformed. The average voter is asked, do you think people at the bottom of the income ladder should have more money? The average voter says, eh, sure, why not? If asked, should the government mandate what a person's wages should be, you'd get a sneer at best. The correct answer is, of course, what an employer and an employee agree on in exchange of time for money is absolutely none of the government's business. And the legislation to meddle in such arrangements is a waste of time and money. But there are politicians in need of cover from real issues, so here we are again. Will raised another great point in a Fox News appearance last year. Who will pay for the rise in minimum wage? Well, by a huge disproportion, it will be the poor, of course. Who does most of the business with those earning minimum wage? It isn't politicians. It's not the guy who drives a Jaguar. It's the people who eat and shop as inexpensively as possible. They will finance the lion's share of this stupid idea. And only a mouth-breathing idiot really believes that hours and jobs won't be lost and prices increased at those very establishments to completely offset the new wage. As a side note, both McDonald's and Walmart already pay above the prevailing minimum wage in most cases. Not all their stores, of course, pay the proposed minimum wage to new employees. Most employees presently move past the $10 figure rather quickly. Here's the cool result of coming up with the magic number of $10 per hour to solve the woes of the downtrodden. The downtrodden get to remain so a bit longer, as employers will be less generous with promotions and raises for established employees. And another. This will incentivize some restaurants to finally employ technology that's been out there for years. Automated ordering. Wawa stores are kicking ass with it. In fact, they have been able to hire more to cover the growth in business. So automation might just be a wash in extremely well-run businesses. It won't matter, though. Occupy Sissy Street types will put on their $250 shabby chic outfits and urinate in front of any restaurant that tries it. The latest iteration of pretending to care about poor people is the brainchild, as it always is, of politicians who find themselves in a hole 
and in need of some handy misdirection. The present administration has been an abysmal failure on absolutely every front. Between blatant failure to corruption to deaths by the administration's ineptitude, Benghazi, or design, fast and furious, this is a White House in constant need of Occupy Wall Street-esque distractions. Follow any news stream from the beginning and you'll find programs trumpeted, programs failed, then the rich attacked and or the poor pandered to. It is so naked it's embarrassing to watch. The CBO reports that the new wage mandate will cost a few million jobs, although there's a negligible chance that no jobs will be lost. This is good news according to the White House. They say that a few million isn't too many people to worry about, and it might be none. Last week they were saying that 2.5 million jobs estimated to be destroyed by Obamacare will be an excellent opportunity for some of us to relax and get out of those jobs we're trapped in. Trumpka gets his cut. Unions love the minimum wage also. As soon as it goes into effect, mark my words, they will point to union employees and say, look at poor Charlie over there, doing a job he never chose to grow out of. Poor fellas only making $2 an hour over minimum wage. That's a disgrace. He needs a raise. The effect this has on bank accounts of the pure of heart, mobbed up union leadership, will only be a happy coincidence. More and more, but not nearly enough yet, people are realizing that the government is a standing insult in many ways, this being one of them. Whenever politicians slash unions claim to be helping the little guy, know with crystal clarity the only people being helped are the governing class and their own incumbency and personal gain. Those who we are told will benefit directly from an increase in the minimum wage will see their gains eaten rather quickly as the entire economy floats to a corresponding position with respect to their big pay raise. I know, I know. I say all these things because I'm a hater. All fiscal conservatives are, right? If I had the wisdom to be found in a drum circle or a Justin Bieber pajama party, I'd be totally on board with this minimum thinking idea. Remember, government that assumes it can decide your minimum wage can also decide your maximum wage. It's been tried. Read up on Nixon. Let me stop here for a quick 2023 update. The popular cry for the raise in the minimum wage is now up to $15 an hour. And union payrolls, therefore dues, therefore mob boss, uh, I mean union leadership paychecks, are tied directly to percentages above prevailing minimum wage. I'll leave a link to a Forbes article that's worth reading. Be sure to use all the buttons at the top and bottom of the text. We live and die by the share and subscribe buttons. Send inquiries to poriverproductions at gmail.com. Thank you very much for joining us today.